1: HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Wickham, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be listening to a Housing News Podcast crossover episode that features
0: an interview with Simone Beattie, the Director of Single Family Affordable Lending Initiatives at Freddie Mac. In this episode, Beattie explains how Freddie Mac is supporting shared equity programs as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to financially strain Americans nationwide. But before we listen, here's a brief word on HousingWire's newest podcast. They say money talks, so why can't we? HousingWire is thrilled to introduce its newest podcast, GirlFunds, a show where we give you our two cents on money. We love to talk with our girlfriends about everything, except our finances. We're here to bring money back into the conversation hosted by me, Brendan Nath, along with our editor in chief, Sarah Wheeler. Be sure to join us every week starting this Wednesday for our girls' night focused on everything from how to pursue your dream of owning a home to affording your best friend's wedding. Each week we'll have a special guest join us as we intertwine finance and friendship. Welcome, everyone, to our latest edition of the Housing News Podcast. I'm Sarah Wheeler, editor in chief at HousingWire. And today I'm speaking with Simone Beattie, director of single family affordable lending initiatives at Freddie Mac. Really excited to dive into our topic today. Simone, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you, Sarah, for having me be part of this podcast.
0: Yeah, you know, something we like to do before we jump into the the main questions is kind of find out how you got into the industry. This is something that is just fascinating to us because there's not, you know, a, a, always a clear path. And how everyone got into this, this industry is uh, a varied story.
1: So I'd love to know, you know, how did that happen for you? Oh, actually, and so it's a great question, because I don't think I've ever met anyone that said, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, in financial services and specifically on the mortgage side. If I ever come across that person, I will, it'll be memorable. But, you know, I stumbled into this just like I think most of my peers in that it was um, a kind of a side job um, as I was going to school. Um, where, you know, I I started at a small mortgage shop. As a matter of fact, that mortgage shop became kind of, uh, you know, uh, Bank of America is one of Bank of America's mortgage centers. But um, basically helping out, you know, folks that were packaging loans for underwriting and processing and things like that. And kind of found myself sucked into it uh, as I kind of stayed at that shop, you know, year over year, was sucked into the business because it went from looking at how we can, you know, potentially uh, grow business at that particular firm to uh, trying to figure out how to look at policy so that we can get more business. And so I actually got sucked in at a very young age. I was 19. I'll never forget it. And I grew up in the business. Uh, It became essentially almost a side hustle to, you know, my uh, career. And so, uh, you know, I never thought, you know, I would be in this business at that point in time. That was not what I was focused on. I was focused on mass communications at the time, was looking at potential kind of exploring whether I wanted to do journalism and, and, you know, along those lines. And at the end of the day, you know, the job was intriguing. Um, It definitely In the long run, I was able to kind of stabilize for enough for me to look at it as a career. And, you know, here I am kind of in the thick of it, um, I ended up making decisions to decide to see how you know how I can provide value within kind of the roles I've had over the years. And, and so ultimately those roads led to Freddie Mac and I have spent most of my career, my adult career at Freddie Mac up in at the company over 16 years now, focused on different aspects of the business, uh, you know, uh, have done the audit role and, and quality control role um, and, and segued into policy after those roles um, Starting primarily with the servicing uh, group, I was in the servicing policy group right before, you know, a few years before we actually um, were knee-deep in the housing crisis, right, and, you know, post-servicing, I um, uh, segued into affordable lending. So a lot of the roles I've had at Freddie Mac had to do with how we can help people uh, either stay in the home or help people get into the home um, with some sort of retention and sustainability and affordability um, on those types of transactions. So that's that's kind of a mini history of kind of how I found myself in the business. It's it's It started purely by accident, um, not necessarily as my initial career goal, but the more I was in it, the more I realized how um, diverse and varied, you know, the different uh, roles could be within the business itself, and so I stayed. And I'm glad I did. So thank you for that question. Sure,
0: very interesting. And I I do like the description of getting sucked in <laughs> to
1: our industry.
0: <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, to your point, no one's like, oh, that's what I want to be when I grow up. They don't even know about it. So yeah, no. Thanks for sharing that. Appreciate it. Well, let's dive in. So my first question is really, you know, we're going to be talking about affordable housing today. We, I know it's a key priority for Freddie Mac. Can you tell us about the overarching goal Freddie Mac has for this area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, affordable housing um, is part of our core business uh, today. Um, and so what we aspire to do is provide and expand affordability to all corners of the U.S. housing market. And so what that really means for us is to essentially demonstrate leadership in the market, we can be the catalyst and we can also provide the model on how to improve the distribution of investment capital that could ultimately serve low and moderate income families. And that goal is particularly important now more than ever because even though we're in the middle of a little crisis caused by the pandemic, and it's not little, it's big, We are also, that's happening in parallel as we are also in the middle of an affordability crisis, from my perspective. So, there is a scarcity of affordable housing units nationwide. Our research and analytics, you know, when we look at our data, it reveals that in order to make up the shortage of affordable housing units nationwide, essentially, an additional two and a half million additional affordable units has to be created to make up the shortage. And that is no small number. So our focus has been um, strategically on as we look at initiatives and as we create solutions, how are those solutions going to drive and facilitate Uh, you know, you know, either the development of more units, or at least to be able to sustain the units that are being developed, right? So we want to help drive the increase and creation of units with all of the activities that we're looking at in the affordable space, knowing that we cannot be driving towards homeownership and be agnostic to the fact that, you know, there's a huge gap in the uh, supply. And there's also a huge gap in overall homeownership across certain segments of the market.
0: That is really a huge gap. You know, what are some of the very unique challenges, you know, in making sure affordable housing is is available this year, you know, for low to moderate income borrowers who have been so affected by the COVID crisis?
1: Yeah, and so what we always bump into is the demand for units outpace supply. And we're always trying to figure out how do we deal with the supply issue how we deal with access to credit like we have the supply issue and then we have the access issue right and so we try to tackle both on the supply issue and in the access to credit some sometimes solutions can be merged where you're looking at flexible you know qualifying requirements that take into account things like non-traditional credit um, trying to get folks that are not mortgage ready, making sure that they understand what steps they need to take to be mortgage ready so that they are not blindly applying for a loan, knowing fully, you know, when they do that, more than likely they're probably going to be declined, right? And so looking at strategic initiatives that will not only tie homeowners to programs where there's some sort of assistance and affordable um, activity happening, but also looking at our, our, our products and making sure that not only that they support those programs, but that we are also making sure that there's some flexibilities for lenders, for borrowers that may not meet the traditional credit profile so that once they are mortgage ready, if they're not you know, necessarily the cookie cutter kind of credit-worthy borrower that we typically will see is that there is enough room in the qualifying requirements that give lenders um, the ability to make sure that they can fit within the conventional lending realm, right? And so we look at that. We have initiatives that are basically very strategic, tied to programs like shared equity, um, where you know, you know that construct has a few. Um, models within it that helps with affordability for the purpose of trying to essentially provide housing and programs in high-cost markets where the housing stock, you know, once it's priced for the market, is usually out of reach for the average moderate um, and low-income homebuyer. You
0: know, our audience is very familiar with Freddie Mac, right? I mean, they they work with you guys all the time. Mm-hmm. They're very familiar, and they might think they know a lot about um, the different affordable housing initiatives you have. But what are some of those initiatives that they may not be familiar with?
1: So I mentioned shared equity. So the, we we have products that support shared equity programs that support long term affordability. Um, For single-family units in a given market. Um, We also have green programs. So to the extent that folks are looking for homes where they can reduce the amount they're spending on utility savings or they're already in a home and they need to have some sustainability way to make improvements that will also have some cost savings for them over the long run and provide some resiliency um, changes that they need to make to deal with climate change, we also have those as well. So those, those are newer products that have not been out in the market by, for Mac for very long, but they are definitely um, you know, products, in my opinion, products of the future that will be necessary for us to be able to not only address affordability but address sustainability as well. So take shared equity, for example. So, you know, folks may not be aware of what it even is, right? And so the way shared the current dynamic in which shared equity works is that. You know most localities across the country will create like a set aside for affordable units they'll work with developers and say hey x percent or x amount of units that you're developing has to be made uh affordable so that you know they can be sold to income uh to individuals with low and moderate income right and so we they have usually have these huge wait lists as I mentioned earlier, the demand definitely out, you know, outpaces the supply. And so these wait lists are like years long of uh, individuals that meet certain income and other criteria that qualifies for these potential units that are getting set aside. Here's what happens though. Once these individuals qualify for the property and uh, they are sold to that individual, the conditions that apply for those properties, those properties are heavily subsidized uh, between the locality and the developer in most cases to make the sales price affordable to that individual. As long as they occupy the property, for example, as their primary residence and don't resell the property for a period of time, once those conditions expire, The family or individual that purchased that property is free to sell the property at full market value, irrespective of the subsidy that was put into it to make it uh, affordable for them. So what ends up happening is you have this temporary state of a creation of an affordable unit in a market that once it gets resold and transferred to a new owner, you know, the the market loses a unit, right? So we don't have long-term affordable single-family units once resales happen. And so what shared equity does, if if, you know, a locality decides to use that model or use a nonprofit within their market that is employing that model is, they will sell the property, they will acquire properties, first of all, usually through using state grants, um, or local grants, or, uh, you know, they get donated properties, and they will have a portfolio of properties that they will turn around and sell to an income eligible individual or family. But when they sell it, it's with an agreement with that individual buying the property that, hey, we are selling this property to you below market value, However, if, you know, when it's time for you to resell and transfer ownership of this, we're expecting to get some of that subsidy back to be able to make the property uh, uh, available to another low-income or moderate-income family so that the subsidy is passed on, right? And it can be passed on as down payment assistance. It could be passed on through updating the property, making sure the property is brought up to code or any updates that needs to be made, right? But at the end of the day, there is some equity being held back so that that unit remains permanently affordable in that market so that the market is not losing units it's actually sustaining units and as it gains units hopefully as that model is employed you know across different entities that you know the market may have a sufficient supply of affordable units so when we heard that these programs exist and these models exist in, in terms of trying to address scarcity of units and permanently affordable units, we created financing solutions that can support them, right? And so there are a lot of nonprofit programs out there that are offering uh, these, this type of model. And there is also local municipalities that are offering this type of model. They just needed the financing to align with it, to support it, right? And so what we've done is put out products and enhancements to our existing product line that supports this type of model. Um, and, and I can also go into those two uh, transactionally what those models look like. Yeah, no,
0: I'd be really interested in that. And also, you know, like, what is, has this year slowed that down at all? Or, or have you guys not had to pivot, you know, because of all the COVID stuff?
1: I mean, has it been going smoothly this year? It's a great question. So, I will answer that after I talk about the models. So, um, in terms of what they are, there are two that is predominantly used in this shared equity homeownership, um, um, you know, overall, our overarching umbrella of shared equity homeownership. So, the first model is a, a community land trust model. And the way the community land trust model is, you'll have a nonprofit that will acquire properties. And instead of selling both the land and the property, they will sell the property, the improvement on the land, and attach a ground lease to the land. So they own, they retain ownership of the land, they sell the unit on the land and the fact that they held back the sale and the price of the land and the purchase price makes the property affordable because then the buyer is only really paying for the improvement on the land and not the land itself. And, and there, 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 there is usually a 99 year ground lease on that land for which the home buyer is paying a nominal ground rent fee uh, to the community land trust. um, Kind of in exchange of kind of getting the whole, you know, uh, property be, being subsidized and being affordable um, in a given market. The second type of model is just the pure you know um, income based deed restriction. Uh, it's essentially a restriction on resale. That forces the buyer, once they try to resale, if they are, you know, sold a home below market, there is a restriction on title that basically tells the home buyer you would need to negotiate how much equity you're able to get out of this property on resale and basically restricts the sales price on the property as well. So there's a negotiating that needs to occur when the home buyer tries to do Uh, a sale and a transfer of ownership, that they need to be talking to the program steward that actually sold them the home so that there is some equity extraction going to the home buyer, an equity extraction going back to the program provider so that they can make the home available to another low-income or moderate-income family. So those are the two models that are out there that we have stood up um, financing, uh, at least a product and an offering to support to your second question on you know how that's going we are competing with a lot of refinance activity you Right, know, right? <laughs> i'll start with before you and the pandemic even started we have sellers that are definitely interested or our lending community that's definitely interesting these models they definitely want to learn more we have you know lenders that have stood up processes to support it but we actually started twenty twenty competing with an overwhelming amount of refinance applications. And so the conversation, we go, wow, that sounds interesting. I am definitely would love to explore more with you, Freddie Mac, on how we can participate in that new product offering that you've just released. However, let's get through the refi. We need to get oh, through the refi backlog first. And then what happened, you know, three, four months later? Pandemic and then lockdowns and trying to deal with homeowners now raising their hand To be able to ask for help because they're having trouble, given the economic situation that the pandemic, um, you know, impacted the economy, where you know there's job losses, a lot of hardships out there, and so we went from competing with refinances to competing with refinances, plus all the changes that need to be worked through on uh, due to COVID, and so we have had some take up on what we have released, but. I don't know that we have fully experienced kind of the breadth of what was initially kind of out there in terms of appetite. Um, And I think it's because we're competing uh, with too many different externalities. Uh, Once we kind of get into more normalized market, I think we will see more volume. We've had some volume and we are, very appreciative that folks actually took the time to find capacity to implement the offerings that we have put out uh, for shared equity. But we, we see this as a kind of a future long-term goal that we eventually once, you know, the, you know, the market normalizes more, that more than likely we will see a lot more participation. So great questions on both fronts.
0: Well, and it makes total sense. I mean, you know, these things are unforeseen, so it's yeah. not like you could you could do that, but um uh, you know, on that topic of something that maybe got pushed on 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 a back burner, you you did mention um green initiatives and I feel like that's something that we've seen. We thought this was going to be the year of of really talking about climate and and the intersection of that with with the mortgage industry. And then of course, you know, just the pandemic. So um but I would but I would love to talk about that you know, bring us up to date on on any energy efficiency or green initiatives you guys are doing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the green initiatives are very exciting um, because we went from seeing almost no really activity in the mortgage space to folks starting to pay attention to potential green financing using the mortgage. So, you know, consumers are always looking for enhancements to their property, right? And I think what we are starting to see is a pivot Uh, to enhancements that has some sort of efficiency tied to it so that there is some savings on utility usage. um, Because, you know, both at the federal and the state and local level, there seems to be enough incentives out there that is making consumers starting to pay attention that if I make these improvements, not only potentially I could see, you know, you know, a reduction in utility usage and some cash savings there, but it can all potentially increase the value of their home. And they can also kind of be the beneficiary of the incentives that may be out there in the market as they do that. So what we are seeing currently is the pandemic has increased the need for home improvements with the lockdown with a lot of us kind of having to figure out how to create you know our mini home offices and how do we sustain everything we have to do you know on a day-to-day with our families you know we're starting to take a fresh look at hey how is our home working for us to do all of these things right and there is definitely going to be more of a pull on utilities and things like that and so as folks are thinking of renovations and retrofits uh, for their homes you know, I think efficiency, both energy and water, is being factored into some of those decisions, right? It may not be the sole item that's being renovated in the home, but it definitely can be factored in as part of a larger renovation or even a small renovation. You can have some efficiency uh, be part of that. The other piece that is very timely, too, is that we've seen an increase in storms over the last few years, um, you know, as we're looking at the effects of climate change, folks are you know doing repairs and renovations for that purpose as well and as they do those repairs they have to have some sort they're thinking about some sort of resiliency whatever they need to make sure that they're they're protected as you know they're putting in different retrofits in their homes for resiliency purposes those you know depending on what it is can also have some efficiency that comes with it so in terms of both you know you know the greenness and resiliency it is timely that we put to market a year ago or a little over a year ago a product called Green Choice Mortgage. And our solution essentially incentivizes lenders and consumers to take a fresh look at using the mortgage to make improvements that are energy efficient. Or, you know, even if those improvements aren't 100% energy efficient uh, in nature a portion of it, even if a portion of it is included, it qualifies. So today, most consumers don't use the mortgage. Um, you know, they think of a mortgage as a very lengthy process. It might be cumbersome for them to do something small. And so when they go to a contractor or a big box store to do, you know, you know, to figure out what it is that they need to improve their home, they're usually typically using credit cards, they're using cash, they're using hard money loans and unsecured loans, right, to basically pay for those improvements. And over the long run, that can be costly from them, um, depending on the amount um of the improvements that they're trying to make and so what we're trying to show both you know the lending community and consumers is hey we have a streamlined version of a renovation offering where you know we will allow you if you've already incurred the credit card debt for example to pay for these improvements use our mortgage to pay off that debt and spread the payments over time so that you're not paying For your improvements, it's not, you know, we want to make it more cost effective for you. Um, If you can have a low interest rate um, and rates are extremely low right now, right? And spread those payments over time, whether it's 15 years or 30 years, it can definitely, you know, result in a lower payment than maybe the hard money loans and the credit card debt that you're using to pay for these improvements. And so we will allow that up to, for example, the full maximum LTV on a no-cash-out refinance. So we won't treat it as a cash-out as long as you can document that the money you've spent and the debt you incurred was for this purpose, right? So that is a huge um, advantage. Um, you, can, you can actually probably amp up the amount of improvements you were initially looking to do if you can use full mortgage financing, right, uh, to, pay, to pay off that debt. Um, And to the extent that you want to do a reno and you haven't started yet, will allow our product offering allows you to get the proceeds even before you start. We'll allow 15% of the proceeds to be, uh, you know, of the amount financed to be used towards a reno. And and we give the consumer, uh, we tell the lender to let the consumer know that you have six months to finish the renovation on it, right? And so we try to be as flexible as possible. To incentivize use of the mortgage for this purpose. And so it's been very exciting to see that we, you know, lenders took notice. Um, A lot of the uh, transactions we have seen currently have been, for example, solar installations. So, you know, states like California and other states are contemplating how do they make their, you know, um, their construction greener, you know, and as solar becomes a thing. Uh, In more and more states, especially in states that see high utility usage, um, I think this product will be kind of in front of that activity so that it's already there off the shelf for someone to leverage as they're looking to figure out how to improve their property or how to buy a property that needs needs this type of uh, retrofit.
0: Well, I also think that, you know, to your point, I feel like there's been a tipping point in sort of the consciousness of, you know, okay, so we're all at home more to your point. We're using, realizing how much, um, we use when we're home all day. And then also just the, you know, the, the terrible wildfires and some of the other natural disasters. I do feel like there's like a tipping point of like, okay, let me look into this now. And, and there have been enough other things happen that, that I think people are open to it. That's great that, uh, that you have, lenders who are really up on those products and and helping their consumers know about them. Yeah. I think, yeah, Thanks think, I, awesome. I, think it, I think it's timely. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. When, let's look forward to 2021. And when you look at, at the next year, how do you prepare to help consumers and home buyers when there's still so much unknown about the course of the pandemic at this point?
1: You know, that's a great question. And so one thing even with the pandemic and the current unknowns, because there's still a lot of unknowns, right? We don't know how 2021 is going to unfold for us. The one thing that it remains consistent is that we will always need housing, and we will always need affordable housing, and we will always need to make sure that consumers you know, looking to buy a house, has the the tools and solutions that they need, or if they're already in a house, need to be able to sustain and be able to, you know, uh, make those mortgage payments and get the help that they need. And so what we have done this year is we initially, as a company, we initiated a Help Starts Here campaign, right? So we have a link on our website um, that basically, you know, is tied to kind of COVID, where both lenders and consumers can click through to understand their options if they're impacted by COVID. So for, you know, for existing homeowners, luckily we now, we have had or you know, had developed in the last housing crisis. You know, off-the-shelf solutions that we are now leveraging to deal with the current environment created by the pandemic. You know, you know, from forbearance relief, repayment plans, and loan modifications, right? And our forbearance relief, you know, you know, a consumer can defer payments up to twelve months, and we waive late fees and things of that nature. To trying to figure out a permanent solution once they come off of, you know, a deferment of payments and making sure that we have solutions that help them stay in the home, we can modify the terms of their loans based on their unique circumstances so that they can remain in the home. And then we've also offered up a reemployment service. So, you know, folks that are in, you know, really hardest hit markets that are experiencing job loss, we have. Have put in, in strategic underserved markets that have been, you know, persistently poor over the last thirty years, and they tend to be hit the hardest whenever there isn't, you know, a, a, a issue like the pandemic occurring. We have a service called Next Job, which is a reemployment service that a consumer can take advantage of at no cost to the consumer for mortgages we own. So we, it, you know, it provides job search assistance, job coaching, you know, if it's a Freddie Mac mortgage um, and, and the home is in a designated underserved market, that service is there at no cost. We also have regional borrower help centers around the country that provide holistic financial education and counseling. They can review your budget for you. They can provide debt and credit management services. And this applies to customers that potentially, um, you know, future customers that may be trying to get mortgage ready and trying to figure out how they need to get their finances in order to become mortgage ready, right? So we have solutions out there that folks can can point to if they need help, especially as they're thinking about, you know, either getting into the home or trying to remain in the home that are out there for them to take advantage of, um, you know, and, and one thing I did not mention is existing homeowners that for whatever reason, if they don't see a way through on, you know, their their current circumstances, but they still need housing we have provided you know a halt to or a suspension of all our foreclosure actions and evictions um through the end of this year and so you know at the end of the day we may still have to iterate on some of this in 2021 but the fact remains is that we are solely focused on both readiness and sustainability for it Um, As we go into 2021 and and to the extent that we get another monkey wrench thrown into the equation where we would have to come up with some additional solutions we're ready to do that, Um, but we do have help available right now that we feel can still be leveraged in the future.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really robust <laughs> uh, number <laughs> of programs that you outlined there, and, and so it does seem like you're you're very uh, well poised for the next year. You know, when considering some of the new programs and the products that you guys have initiated, what are you excited about seeing happen as those roll
1: out? Oh, you know, well, the, you know, the one thing I didn't mention about the pandemic is as we roll out programs, you know, the virtual engagement is now a thing, Right. And so we all, I mean, we're, you know, every, every, you know, conference and engagement I've done, you know, since March has been done virtually or over the phone. And so now it's easier to do processing of solutions electronically. Um, let's take like eNotes, for example, you know, you, the one thing that the pandemic uh, did, you know, have a direct impact is how we do like our mortgage processing and you know and how how do you get through things like appraisal inspections where an appraiser has to come inside your property or chasing the validation of the fin- financial information that you have to gather right so all of this stuff is now being done electronically we've had to update everything that we do so that we provide some more flexibility in what we will accept. Um, but eNotes, for example, was already increasing in terms of usage. I think when we looked at 2018 versus 2019, I think it rose sharply in 2019 and went from 17,000 to th- over 36,000 in the MERS e-registry. I would imagine that as we go back and we look at data, for the increase in kind of e-transactions that prob- that number has probably increased and exponentially this year i think one of the permanent after effects of the pandemic which is kind of exciting because it's bringing us into 21st century on you know electronic transactions is We're probably going to see an expedition of financial institutions having plans to have some sort of e-solution or e-closing so that it becomes the norm rather than just an alternative. So that's one thing that's, in my opinion, is very exciting is that we have, you know, it can reduce over the long term, probably costs and the time it takes to process in certain instances. So I think it's probably going to be one of the after effects of the pandemic on how we transact. The other thing that gets me excited is, as Freddie Mac is rolling out all these, you know, sustainable and affordable programs to the market and lenders are taking notice and lenders are moving into adoption um, slowly but surely, I think what we are seeing on the secondary market is investor interest in those types of transactions. More and more firms are standing up sustainability uh, goals and, you know, social goals where these types of loans, um, there is a growing appetite for it. And, you know, what I'm hopeful about is at the top of, you know, today's call I mentioned that we want to improve the distribution of investment capital that serve low and moderate income families. As more and more financial institutions see that not only long-term, this makes good business and fiscal sense, that the more participation we get, the more we increase private capital and investment capital in this space that could eventually translate in the long run and in the long term to savings, right, for low and moderate income families in terms of price. And so I I think it's an exciting time to be in the creation mode of some of these offerings. And as we iterate on these offerings, the long term effect is going to be uh, very impactful to the markets that we're trying to serve. So that's what's exciting. That's what gets me excited. That what keeps me motivated to do more in this space. And I and I thank you very much for that question.
0: Well, Simone, thank you for speaking with us today. It's really been informative and just interesting to find out all of the options you guys have and and what you see coming. I, you know, the the idea of that investor interest picking up, you know, that's that's really interesting as we go into this new year, something for us to keep an eye on for sure. And and we just appreciate you taking the time. It's
1: been great. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Alcina Lloyd. The Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more.
0: Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and we'll catch everyone back here again tomorrow.